0: Part of the Media Ministry of Cornerstone Church, you can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.cornerstone.org, or by subscribing to our podcast. Father, we talk in that song about the the glory that you have already revealed. Father, you you Paul uses that that word glory in, in the past tense. It's a done deal. It's sealed. It will be delivered. And Father, you've given us your very spirit just as that sign, as that guarantee until that day of redemption. And yet, Father, we we face a lot of futility, a lot of uh, friction here in life. So, Father, help us today as we go to your word, Father, that we will see what you have promised, what is true, what is factual, even if the feeling is not always there, even if, Father, this world would sometimes tell our mind and even our heart, Father, that these things are not truth so, Father, as we pour into your word this morning, Father, as we claim these truths, as Father, as we see who we can be in Christ, Father, I pray for those that are Christians here this morning, Father, that uh, uh, the torment that they may have, the doubt that they have, Father, today you would just give them a, a guarantee, and Father, uh, uh, just something that's so real in their lives. But, Father, for those that may not know you this morning, maybe they're good people, maybe they... Uh, have done good things in their lives. Maybe they are actually even better than a lot of Christians that we might know. And yet, Father, they've never entered into that relationship to you in a personal way. Father, will you reveal the gospel to them? Father, not religion. Not just laws and, and morals and all those things. As important as the, the law is. And, Father, you've called us into a morality. Father, you've called us foremost into a relationship with your son. And so, Father, today will you open eyes, Father, as only your spirit can. Father, we cannot come to you, Father, lest you open our eyes and and see you as you are. And I pray that you would do that even in the midst of our service this day as we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. And really good to see you this morning. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're near the end of Romans chapter 8, and we've been talking, uh, really, uh, those those songs really kind of captured what we've been talking about, what Paul was describing there, that God has already promised those who are in Christ a glory. And if I asked you this morning, that if you're a Christian, and I said, do you believe that you're going to heaven? I, I would imagine that I would see just about everybody raise their hand and say, yeah, you know, I really don't have doubt about the heaven part. Uh, but what about the daily time that we just have the friction of this world and that we have to really deal with fallen people and our own fallenness and all those things that we haven't seen the fullness of all that displayed? And so this morning, as we go into God's word, we're going to see that there is that kind of that tug of war that goes back and forth between scriptural truth and what God has already said is going to happen and where we live. How many of y'all have ever been to a criminal trial? How many of y'all were actually in the criminal trial? It was a, no, now, if you've ever been to a criminal trial, you, you know that there's really kind of some stages of that criminal trial. Uh, they will start with kind of the opening statement, and the lawyers both from both the defense and the prosecution will get out there, and they will make their opening statements to the jury, and they will say, okay, here's the case before you. And then you have a trial. Sometimes that trial is a, a day. Sometimes it's a week. Sometimes it can go on for months. And then finally, after they put all those facts out there, there's finally a, a time in that trial where they kind of sum up everything, and they have what we call the closing arguments. And in that time, you have the opportunity for the, each one of those lawyers to, to make their case, to sum up what happened in that day, week, or months of trial. And in about 15, 30, 45 minutes, try to bring everything together. Well, that's kind of where we are in Romans chapter 8. Paul's at a point now where he has made this bold declaration in Romans 8, one that is there, there for now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That if we're in Christ, we are totally forgiven, not partially forgiven, not most of the way forgiven. That's an activity that's still going on, but it is totally is something that is done. And so he's made this bold declaration in Romans eight one of what is reality for the life of the believer, somebody who's in Christ. And he spent the whole rest of the time kind of giving us the case. And he's been very logical. If you're a logically minded person, you would love Romans chapter eight because it's, he just puts out a logical case. It's not kind of touchy feely. It's not you know even though it has a lot of emotion in it. He's really coming much more from that vantage point of a lawyer kind of making his case. That's really what all of Romans is. And we come to this place where as he's making this final closing argument, he uses a tactic that a lot of lawyers use. That is, he begins to ask questions. Uh, To be honest, he asks more of a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is where, you know, there's an assumed answer. You ask the question, but there's already an assumed answer to it. In other words, if, you know, when you ask that question, you're not really expecting a reply from everybody because in, in their mind you're just kind of making a statement. It's almost like when you were growing up and your mom may have asked, do I look like the maid? Anybody remember that? And, and you know, if you were wise, you didn't answer her. You know, you know, not say, well, well, actually you do. You look, you know. No, there was a a point to where she would ask you that because she was tired of picking up your clothes. She was tired of doing all those things. And it's like, you know, do I really look like the maid? And so that's what Paul was doing here as we come to the conclusion of Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, again, open up to Romans chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 31. And what Paul does here, he uses this technique and basically he asks seven questions. But really, he sum, uh, summarizes his points in, in five questions. So this morning, what we're going to do is look at five questions that every one of us should know the answer to. And, and if you don't know the answer, then today is a good day for you to say, okay, this is what God has said. Now, I say that not to, to prove your ignorance if you don't know the answer, but, but sometimes as we go through this life and, and we think, take things that God has made sure and definite, it's our fallenness, it's, it's our kind of humanity in this state that we are still where even though Christ has finished off his work, our mind is still trying to grab hold of that and, and, and make it something that we know, that we know, that we know. And, and so Paul begins to ask five questions. The first one is found in verse 31. So Romans chapter 8 verse 31. and look at the first question that he says, "Really, this would be enough for it to be the summation of really his whole argument there?" Romans 8:31. What then shall we say to these things? He makes a connection to everything that he stated before. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We're just saying that. If God is on our side, then he really can be against us. And we have said many times over the last several weeks that Paul is not saying that difficulty is not a part of the Christian's life if you really thought that following Christ meant that it was just going to be this rose-colored, you know, and garden-filled time of your life and that all the pain and all the trials and all the tribulations of your life was going to go away, that, that's not what the Bible ever promises, and it's certainly not the point that Paul was making there. And, but his first point really comes out to, he says, look, if, if God is for you, even in this life of trial, if God is for you, who can be against you? Now the main thing that Paul is trying to bring to the believer and really uh, just make concrete in our heart is this whole thing about eternal security. I've heard it called the perseverance of the saint. I've heard it called the, uh, the preserving of the saint. You, you can use different terms. Theological people use different terms. But basically that once we're in Christ, we've put our firm faith and belief that to be made right with the holy God that it was Christ and his finished work, his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what made us right with God, not our own works, not our own ability to be good people. But once we are settled in that and we put our full faith in that, the Bible says at that point that very much that that not only are we saved, but folks, we're, we're saved forever. And yet, do you always feel saved? I think I shared about four or five weeks ago, You know, one of my favorite preachers is Charles Spurgeon. And I love how Spurgeon would say things. And he said, you know, if I based my salvation, my Christianity, just on my walk with Christ, my goodness or my madness today, my feelings and my emotions, he said I would have been lost and saved five or six different times. Have you felt that, that way? You know, that It was just based on, oh man, today was a bad day. I just don't really feel like a Christian. Well, Paul is trying to settle that. Because think about what the Romans were going through. Number one, they were living in a very... If you want to say evil world, I mean you think back what happened just a couple of days ago in Paris, and we're going, man, what what a world we live in. Well, folks, you can go back two thousand years and, and there was that kind of evilness, there was that kind of hatred man against man, there was people that were being persecuted. When Paul is writing this, Christians are actually being taken to places and fed to wild animals. It wasn't unusual during, uh, under Nero for uh, Christians to be hung upside down on the cross to make mockery of, uh, of Christ and uh, lit for garden parties. They would actually like the. buy. I mean, just gross things, things that just blow our mind. And so Paul is not talking in this ideolic world. This isn't some utopia that Paul has come upon. He says, hey, look, when Christ begins to really reign, everything's going to work out. He's talking to people that are really facing dire circumstances. And yet he's trying to get us to gain perspective. And that first question, I mean, what an amazing question. If God is for you, who can be against you? I mean, in one way, isn't the case closed right then? I mean, couldn't you just really close the rest of the, the other four questions? Because that is so solid in what Paul is asking. If God is on our side, not just on our side, not just kind of a hero in our corner, but if he has finished the work, what else can we expect? What else can we add to that? So Paul begins to, to talk about that. He asks this first question, and his whole theory is not that the Christian life is the absence of problems but it's the presence of God. If you're waiting for the Christian life to be the absence of problems, it will come one day. It will come. And we just sang about it. That glorious day. It will happen till glory. As long as we're walking this earth, there's going to be torment. There's going to be times that our heart is broken. There's going to be times that we're going to be disappointed in one another, people that we love, people that we trusted. We're going to be disappointed in God even though there's really not a reason to be disappointed in God, we're going to be this fragile being in the midst of this world until that glorious day when all of sin has been pushed away and we live in a place where there is no sin, and there is no crying and there is no pain, that glorious day of heaven. But until then, Paul says, look, here's the promise of God. Not the absence of problems, but that I'm ever with you. See, they even knew that in the Old Testament, even before Christ came and did his work. The Old Testament in Psalms 118, verse 6, the psalmist wrote, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, do you like that verse? Is there an answer? And that wasn't so much rhetorical, uh, written in the Old Testament, the psalmist. What's the answer to that? What can man do to you? Can man do anything to you? Yeah, he really can. The answer wasn't there just, oh, you know, whatever man can do. No, the the psalmist was going, look, I I want you to get in perspective. Man can do a lot to you. But he's trying to say, okay, but but if God is on your side, if God is on my side, the Lord is on my side, I'm not going to fear. Why? Because I have both God's protection and I have God with me. Folks, this whole thought that the Christian life is just some kind of a, a, a walk through the garden, it's not biblical. And Paul is trying to come to a place where he is trying to show us not so much a problem-free life, but the security of the believer. That's really what Romans 8 is all about, is that once you're in Christ, you're in Christ. It's his work. The attacks in Paris this past week, it's amazing the kind of fear that that brings to a lot of people. It brings a lot of sorrow, a lot of heartbreak, a lot of prayers. I pray that you have been praying for those people that God would use even this tragedy in the lives of that nation to bring them together, that men and women may come to know the security of Jesus Christ because as they begin to face that fear that their life could be over at any moment because of terrorist acts, that they would see that there's only one security and that's Jesus Christ. But we see something like that happen thousands of miles away and yet it brings a fear to our own lives in, this own, in our own country, in 9-11. It was a a time that we'll never forget. It's still etched upon the the hearts and the minds of many people. But it really had a lot of different effects. For some people, it had a a, a direct effect for days or weeks. Other people, for months and years. Others, to this day, they still live in both memory of that, but also in fear of that. One of those is my mom. My mom, days afterwards, uh, said, I will never get on a plane again. And I thought, you know, this is going to pass. There's going to be a time when uh, my mom just comes to a place where, you know, five years out, six years out, she'll she'll understand that as tragic as 9-11 was and those planes going into the World Trade Center was, that, you know, statistically speaking, that it's still pretty safe to get on a plane. To this day, my mom hasn't flown. And I doubt that she will ever fly again. She has a lingering fear that somehow if she's on that plane that it's going down. I don't know where you are when you look at tragedy like that. If it has a lingering effect in your life, if it's one of those things where you truly uh, think about it constantly as, uh, as life goes on. But I pray that this morning that you would go into God's word and you see what he's promising here. He's promising us here a, a life not without tragedy, but a life truly that can be without fear because our security is in Jesus Christ. And so the first thing that Paul says is, okay, if God's for us, who can be against us? But that leads to a second question. Look at verse 32. And that question they ask ask next is a question of perspective. He, that is God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all things, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Have you ever wondered why God didn't answer every one of your prayers? I mean, in your heart, your mind, everything was, you know, it was good motives. It wasn't like, okay, oh, God, God, let me win the lottery. Let me do this. It wasn't something that was just for self-gain. It was truly, you know, prayers that, uh, for a loved one who had cancer, for somebody else that was in torment, maybe a, a relationship, a marriage that was seeing trouble. And you prayed, and you prayed earnestly for that marriage so that that relationship would be redeemed and that relationship would come together and that that marriage would stay intact And over weeks and months, eventually you saw that it just it didn't. Well it's not that God is behind every one of those things, those division, folks. That's because we're in a fallen world. The promise here isn't that God is going to give you everything that you ever prayed for. What Paul is doing again is one of perspective. He's saying very simply that okay, when you go to ask those questions, and those questions will come to our lives. That when you begin to ask, okay, God, why didn't you do this? And God, why didn't you do that? Those real meaty questions of life. He said, you always come back to what God did do. He goes from the greater to the lesser. You and I, we usually go from the lesser to the greater. Not so much that we always are on the trivial things, but have you ever just really asked God about trivial things? Things that really were not going to matter in eternity? All of us have. I you know, pray that the sun would come out so that, uh, that we would be able to go to the ball game or something. that wouldn't be raining. I'm not saying that that's trivial in, in, the, the, you know, in one sense. It's very important. You wanted to go to that game. You wanted your child to, to be able to play soccer or whatever it was. But, but there was a part of that. Can't you really understand that really that's kind of trivial in the whole big scheme of the world? It's not that God is not into the trivial things. It's not that he's gonna not answer some of those trivial things in our lives. But the promise here is whenever we go through lives and we truly are earnestly praying for God to do something in our lives, we're praying for a healing, we're praying for a marriage, we're praying for maybe a job or whatever it might be, that we would always come back and instead of making God suspect in his motives and his intentions, Paul's driving us back. He said, look, let's go from the greater to the lesser. Let's not work our way from the lesser to the greater. What has God already done for us? And He points us back to Christ. Let's read that again, Romans eight thirty two. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Not a guarantee that every answered prayer is going to come your way, but that God, as we saw in Romans eight twenty eight and twenty nine, that He's working all things for two purposes: His glory and our good. But our good is becoming like Christ in that mode and model of, of Christ-likeness, thinking like Christ, loving like Christ, serving like Christ. So Paul is going here, and, and, and he's kind of dealing with those times in our lives when we ask the questions, you know, I mean, have you ever asked yourself if God was mad at you? I mean, have you ever thought, you know, uh, during a really bumpy time in your life, God, do you even love me? Folks, those are real questions, and Paul is not ignoring that, but he takes us back to a case in point. He says, let's begin with the greatest need that you ever had. And your greatest need wasn't a job, as important as a job may be. No offense, but the greatest need wasn't even just, you know, family or, or marriage or this or that. Those are important. Those are parts of, that God has ordained. He's the one that invented marriage. He's the one that gave us family. He makes much of family. But what God tells us here, he said, look, in the big perspective, the greatest need of your life and my life is to be redeemed with a holy God. And he said he fixed that. So let's start with the greater. If we want to look at the heart of God, if you really want to see the intention of God and you want to see the heart of God, start there and work your way from the greater to the lesser instead of the mode of what we usually do, the lesser, the greater. As Paul begins to do that, he eliminates some of this kind of play that we had with God. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Uh, It usually happens in our times when we're a little stressed. Maybe things are going on. But whether we said it out loud, whether we said it in a prayer, whether we wrote it down in a journal, have you ever made a deal with God? God, I'll do this if you do that. God, I'm willing to do this if you're willing to do that. Folks, that's the temptation that I think comes upon us in stressful times, that we get so overwhelmed with our struggle, we get so overwhelmed with that difficulty, especially if it's in the lives of our children. It's an amazing thing when it's our children. We're going, okay, God, I'll do this. Put it on me, but not my child. And we made it sincerely. But, folks, let me just tell you that there's two things that are really wrong with that kind of dealing with God. Number one, I just don't see it to be biblical. I think it flies in in what Paul was saying in this verse. I understand it. I've done it. But I don't think it's biblical. Number one, it's assuming that if we deal with God, that somehow we have something to offer God that we have something to bargain with. You know what we came to the table with? Our sin. That was it. That's all we came to the table with was our sin. And he came with a Savior. The second part of that, it really assumes that God, for some reason, somehow is holding out on us. That God is just sitting there, waiting at the bargaining table, saying, okay, Bobby, if you up the ante a little bit, if you give a little bit more, then I'll do this. Do you really think that's the heart of God? It's certainly not what we see reflected in the New Testament. It's not the heart that we see reflected. What does he say? No, he gave his only son. So Paul goes back in that second question. He says, look, when you're pondering these things as you're living life and you're wondering why God isn't answering this prayer, why God isn't doing this, he said, go back to the greatest thing that God has ever given you, and that is his son, and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And he says, start there. Then you'll know the heart of God. Then you'll know the mind of God. And then there's a third thing. A third question, and he comes back to that place, and again, because what is Paul's whole purpose of this section is security of the believer, security in Christ. It really wasn't meant to be an emotional ordeal or how we go through tragedies, but he knows that in our tragedies is when we usually ask God these tough questions. So look what he says in verse 33, a third question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Basically, what Paul's saying there is once God has proclaimed that you're not guilty, there is not a court above him. And all these years of counseling, I've dealt a lot of times with people who said, you know, I've asked for forgiveness from this person, I've asked for forgiveness for this person, but I just can't forgive myself. And I get that. I understand where they're coming from. But do you know that that's not really a biblical, it doesn't line up biblically? When God forgives... That's the ultimate authority. And when God has put you under the finished work of Jesus Christ, when he truly has washed you in the blood of Christ, there is no guilt that we have remaining. And we may feel that sorrow and we say, you know, I just wish I could get over it myself. I understand that from an emotional standpoint. But biblically, just like what we were saying before, this Christ, the solid rock, is saying that's what Paul's trying to do. He says, I want to give you solid feeding so that you can walk, that you can stand. Because I don't know that there's anything more tormenting than a guilt that we haven't resolved within our own heart. I mean, it just comes back. We'll go through weeks. We'll go through months, maybe even years. And then all of a sudden, something will come up, and that guilt comes back. Paul's trying to give us firm standing. So he comes back, and he says, basically, you know, there's a fallacy in this whole statement of, you know, I can't forgive myself. He says, no, you're under the blood of Christ if you've gone to the cross, and if you truly have believed in Christ for the redemption, the forgiveness of your sin, he said, it's finished, guys. There's not a court above him. Now, the great thing about this is the promise for today, but also the promise for tomorrow. If God has promised you that you are forgiven in Christ Jesus, we don't have to fear that one day, and I don't know how Judgment Day is going to happen, guys. The Bible says very little. It, it talks about a judgment day, but it actually talks about two judgments that we'll face as, as believers. But, but, but in the one that is the judgment from our sin, I don't know how all that's going to go down. I don't, again, I don't know that we see a movie and we see a replay of everything that we've ever said and ever done. I, I don't know how that works. But here's the one thing that the Word of God and the testimony of Paul and faith of the work of Christ is trying to do. You don't have to fear that day. You have to say, okay, when I get there before God, that is if you're in Christ. Because if you're in Christ, you truly are forgiven. There is no court above him. It's not like God is looking off to the side and going, okay, is this going to be overruled by somebody else? And yet we live in this world very, very much. um, I mean, let's put it this way. If you were to stand before God today, what charges would you think would be against you? just in your own mind, in your own heart. What charges would be against you? I mean, I can think of thousands. I can think of probably perhaps tens of thousands of sins that I have, that if it was just me standing before a holy God, that if it wasn't for Christ, there would be all kinds of charges. Liar, deceiver, lust, greed, selfishness. Well, the list would go on and on and on. These are all the charges. And, folks, I would be guilty of every one of those things. And that's why I needed a savior. And that's why, that's what Paul is proclaiming here. He says, who's going to bring charge against God's elect? That when you're in Christ, you can stand that day, not on your goodness, not like, okay, like God, you know, I really helped a lot of people there. No, you can stand on that day on the finished work of Christ. That's what Paul started out this whole chapter. There's now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It's not to make us proud, it's to make us Secure in what Christ has finished. Look at the next verse. It says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul stated his case. He has supported his case with the evidence, biblical evidence of the life of Christ. And now he makes this closing argument. It, it, do you know who uh, goes first in a trial? law, prosecution, or the uh, defense. Prosecution goes first. They come out. If you ever been to a a criminal law? Prosecution comes out and says, here's the charges, here's the case, here's the evidence, and and here's how we're going to prosecute. Well, folks, that's kind of where we are. Even as Christians, if you're here this morning, you have trusted Christ as your Savior there's still kind of a mental, there's still a kind of an emotional, and there is a spiritual war going on in our hearts and our lives. The Bible says this. The Bible says that there is an accuser of the brethren. In Revelation it says, and, and you know who that is? Satan, the devil. That even though all this finished work of Christ is accomplished, every bit of this is done in Christ. This is a surety. This is something we can count on. This is something we don't have to fear that judgment day. Why while you and I are still walking this very day, there's an accuser out there. And folks, sometimes he whispers in your ear, and there's other times he shouts in your life. But what Paul is saying here is, look, I want you to know, what, who is there to condemn? Big difference between when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and when Satan condemns us in our sin. People go, you know, I don't know, is this Satan condemning? Is this the Holy Spirit convicting? I've always tried to explain it in a very, probably maybe too simplistic way. When Satan condemns in your life, when that voice is Satan's and not the Holy Spirit, it usually drives you away from the cross of Christ. The last place you want to be is church. The last thing you want to be around is Christian people. The last thing you want to do is really read the Bible and study the Bible. Because that condemning is you're not good enough. And so Satan whispers that into your mind and your heart and tries to put that wedge between you and Christ. You know what the Holy Spirit does? The Holy Spirit will bring conviction. He'll show us what is right and what is wrong, and he'll bring conviction. But, but the Holy Spirit will always draw us back to the cross of Christ. It's the only, our only hope. And so that's how you can know in your life, okay, is this coming from Satan? Is this coming from God? I kind of feel guilty or I feel bad. I feel this, I feel that. Is it drawing you back to this answer that Paul gives of the work of Christ? Or is it driving away from the body of Christ, the family? The morning you don't want to come to church, the morning that you, know, you don't want to be around the family because of just you, you feel this feeling of, of, of not being worthy, I, I promise you guys, that's the very day that you need to come into this place and other places as the family of God and let them just love on you. I know that feeling. You know that feeling. I'm not telling you something you don't know. We've all experienced that combination. But look at the truth of the word here in verse 34. Who is to condemn? And Paul immediately goes to this finished work of Christ and says, look, you know, this accuser, he's out there. Is he going to try to condemn you? Yes, but here's who we have, and this is what we have in Christ. In this continual accusation, in this continual evidence of our sin, Here's what we have: Christ is at the right hand of God. Look what it says in verse 34. He's at the right hand of God, and what is He doing? Say it out loud. Interceding. This one who saved us is now pleading our case. He's there before. God. He's right there with God and saying, "Okay, God, you know I, I, I've I've already paid for that sin. He's already complete in me." Folks, this does not give us a pride. This does not give us an arrogance, and especially does not give us a laziness towards sin. It does not give us an attitude, okay, man, if it's already paid for, and I'm I'm guaranteed heaven no matter what, I can go do whatever I want. That's not the attitude of a believer whatsoever. The attitude of the believer is in this great mercy that he's shown, in this tremendous grace that he's shown. I just want to live for him that much more. It's that life of appreciation. It's that life of joy that drives us then and in Christ's likeness. Well, we come to a fifth and, and final question that Paul asks. And he really gets into the full lawyer mode with this fifth question. And he asks that fi- final question. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? Folks, Paul wasn't just going through a thesaurus and saying, okay, here's some bad things that can happen. The Roman people, Roman Christians, they knew every one of those things. They knew nakedness. They knew what it was to be impoverished for Christ. They knew what it was like to go to the sword. They knew what it was like to, 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 be, to watch friends and family eaten by wild animals in the persecution of Christians. They knew that. This wasn't theory to them. This was something they were actually watching happen. And what is this bold statement that Paul makes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, as this does what you see is horror. What you see is, 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 is dreadful, but don 't think for a second that God has stopped loving you. If you have kids that are at least eight, nine, ten years old, um, you 've probably gone through these stages with your kids. They kind of go through two stages of questions. If not you have, if you have younger ones, you will get there. Uh, that first stage is the why stage parents been through that you know Why's the grass green well because god just wanted to make it green well why and and even though you give an answer to that there's another question of why that repeats that That, that's one stage that kids go through uh three four or five years old why and they ask endless times why but there's a second stage that a lot of kids will go through when their mind begins to to do a little bit more of abstract thoughts complex thinking and that is what if have your kids ever went through that well, what if this, and they come up with some strange things, and I don't know how much, I mean, I had two girls, and my girls didn't go wild, but somehow boys' minds go really, really wild with this what if. And the what if is almost always uh, first preceded by but. But what if. You know, is God still going to love me if I do this? Well, what if I do it five times? What if I do it 25 times? What if I did it and at least for the moment I really enjoyed it? And all of a sudden we begin to ask these what-if questions, even about what God has said. And that's basic what he does here in this, you know, what can separate from God? Is there anything out there that eventually would just separate? Is there a line that we could pass where God doesn't love us anymore? Now, again, folks, who's he talking to? He's talking to those that are in Christ Jesus. Some talking about those who have put their faith and trust in that finished work of Christ. And basically, because his whole argument is that of eternal security, the preserving of the saint, Paul actually says, no, there's no place you can go. There, there's no place you can go. There's nothing that can happen to you. There's no danger. There's nothing that this world can do you that can separate you from the love of God. Folks, our security is not found in our circumstance. It's found in Christ. But here's what your heart and your mind, as we close this morning, here's what what happens. In our heart and our mind, circumstances get so big. And God, again, never makes light of circumstances. He just makes much of Christ. This morning, all these promises, all these guarantees, all this that is settled and done in Christ Jesus is for those who put their faith and their trust in Christ. But I have really good news for you this morning. If you're here this morning and say, you know, Bobby, I've gone to church before. Bobby, I've, I've even read the Bible. I know some verses from the Bible. But, but you're at the point where you really don't know that you truly have put your faith and trust in Christ. You put it more in your ability to be kind of a Christian person. Looking more maybe at the morality that has changed your life. You used to do this, this, and this, but you stopped doing those things because you know that those just weren't good things. And you've looked more to yourself to be able to kind of come to God on that merit. What great news Paul has for us today. What great news God is sharing with us. It is not about how much merit you have. not about your goodness and your ability to do all these things. It is all based on what is finished and done in Christ Jesus. And so here's, here's the appeal this morning, guys. If you're here in Christ Jesus this morning, no matter which way the wind is blowing in your life, And you can so identify with verse 35. So, man, talk about tribulation, distress. That's exactly where I'm living. That you would be able to take these guarantees, these promises of God, and know in your heart this morning that they are secure, and you are secure in Christ Jesus. But here's the promise for those that maybe would be a little bit unsure of where they stand in the whole Christian thing. Hey, I kind of believe that Jesus did die on the cross. I kind of believe some of these things. I just don't know that I get all that. This morning... You know, just go to God and say, "God, I don't know all the words. I don't know all the the theological concepts. I don't know all these things. I just know that I need you, and that you provided your son, your only son, and he's the only Savior that I have. The good thing, he's the only Savior that I need. There's nothing I can add to that. And this very day, here's the miracles of Christianity. This very day, as you put your faith and trust in that, you you can be with." we would often say, saved, become a Christian, part of the family of God. Not after you get baptized, not after, you know, all those things we do to show this outward sign afterwards of what Christ has done for us. A simple belief of just, hey, I cannot save myself. My only hope is Christ. And my prayer this morning is if you have any questions about that, if you have any doubt in your own life, that, that you would just pray out and cry out to your God this morning. He is a God who hears our cries and hears our hurts and hears our pleas. God, will you just firm this up in my life? You can call me during the week. You can email. You can, I, I would love to talk to you. I would love to spend, if you want hours to spend on it, there's nothing more important. That's why Paul belabored all this through Romans 8. He wants us to know the security that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Father, this morning we thank you for uh, Romans 8, Father. And we, we thank you that uh, as Christ begins to, to uh, reign and rule in our lives, Father, that we go through these times where there is a lot of doubt. Father, we go through times when the torment of this world, Father, brings uncertainty. Father, we look at the, the tragedy in Paris the other night and We really wonder, okay, God, why why do you allow such tragedy among men? Father, I thank you this morning that as many questions we have, you always have an answer. And, Father, that answer may not be a a full description of why evil exists and all these things. Father, your answer always comes back to, to one, and that is your son. So, Father, this morning, to make it real personal, Father, for us just to get before you as a holy father before us, We thank you for this surety that you have given us. Father, thank you that this morning, that if you are for us, Father, there is no one that can really come against us. Father, thank you this morning that if we are in Christ, Father, there is no one that can condemn us. This day or that day of judgment to come. And Father, we thank you this morning that there is no one that can separate us from your love. So, Father, when the accuser comes, when guilt comes, when all these different things come into our lives to, to, to put question where you've made a definite statement in Christ, Father, we just pray that you would give us that truth and we'd sink our teeth and our heart and our mind into it. Father, this morning I do pray for those that perhaps, Father, this is the first day that you, you really you begin to open their eyes and their minds to the gospel, this beautiful gift of grace that you've given us that you so loved this world, that even though we were in our sin, that you sent your Son to die for us. What a testimony, Father. What an act of love. And Father, I pray that the beauty of that, the simplicity of that, the depth of that, Father, would be known in mind and heart today by your Holy Spirit. So we love you, Father. We thank you, Father. And we come to this time now where we just kind of reflect upon these truths. Father, I pray that we would just pray where we are, pray here at the altar, Father, that we would be a responding people to you this morning, Father, in praise, in crying out, in need. And, Father, that we would find your grace, your truth, and your love in our time of desperation. We love you, Father, and we thank you for Christ as we pray all these things in his name. Amen.